Hi, everyone. Today I'm joined by Nish Dubashia. Uh, Nish is uh, author of a couple of books and a public speaker on topics of spirituality. I initially encountered, uh, well, a presentation that you gave to the Spiral Dynamics Facebook group, which um, was kind of what brought you to my radar and thought it was fantastic. We'll touch on that in a minute. But by, I guess by training, you're a mathematician, studied at the University of Warwick. And um, uh, but yeah, just a brilliant fellow. And uh, I was really uh, intrigued by your presentation called The Evolution of Religion, I think it was what it was called. And I'll put a link to that below. Um, and so I wanted to explore some of that. But first, yeah, welcome. And thanks for joining. Uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that that intro. No, thank you very much for having me, inviting me on here. It's, a, it's an honor. And I uh, yeah, look forward to a great discussion. Cool. So yeah, let's start with this presentation. So again, I would encourage anyone to basically just check out the link. It's about, I think it's still just around an hour, but it's very worth it. Um, as I was starting to explore the realm of sort of evolutionary spirituality, um, I got these ideas in my head. I was reading Wilbur and Spiral Dynamics books, developmental theory and all this thing. Um, and just had this, it was like, yes, of course, this all makes sense now. Um, there's so much here in terms of the evolution of our, of our God concepts. And then you can start to locate that within these specific uh, value memes or meta memes. Um, and I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to write something on this. I'll do a book. I'll do something. And then um, there was this presentation that you gave, which I attended online and I'm like, oh, well, there it is that, you know, that's a, uh, that's a pretty good treatment right there. Um, so anyway, but at the same time, it's a very rich uh, topic. So um, uh, I figured there'd be a lot to explore there. So why don't you, if possible, could you give a, of course, your original presentation was around an hour, but if there's some way you could give sort of a summary, a, 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 uh, you know, a, a distillation um, within a few minutes of, I mean, you can even go through the whole way that it kind of unfolds, but just in a more kind of summary way. So people know kind of the basic uh, contours of it. Um, and then we can kind of go from there. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Sure. I'll do my best. So um, one of the subjects that really intrigued me from quite an early age was um, what is it that the religions have in common, if anything? And what I started to find is that there's these common themes that keep coming up. Um, at, at a bare minimum, most of the great traditions talk about there being some kind of ultimate reality or higher reality, which I, I'm, I will refer to just as spirit. And most of them talk about human beings as being separate individual selves who can have some kind of relationship or realization of that spirit. Um, so that led to a, a very basic model of three basic entities, spirit, self, and relationship, the relationship between them. And what I started to see across the traditions is that all of them seem to tell a certain type of story, which is that we lose our connection in some way from spirit. There's some kind of disjunction between spirit and self, which leads to suffering. But then the religions offer us some kind of way back through knowledge of spirit, um, realization of spirit, relationship with spirit. And then that manifests as loving behavior, usually in the world. So what I did is I abstracted sort of seven basic principles that we can um, isolate from this story, which I called spirit, self, suffering, hope, knowledge, salvation, love. So there are these seven basic principles that seem to show up everywhere in some form or another. And then I came across 
the evolutionary approach to spirituality, initially in the Indian sage Aurobindo, and then later in Ken Wilbur, who became by far the biggest influence on my thinking. Um, so I then started to wonder, well, can these seven basic principles that we see everywhere, do these take different forms through the levels? And that's effectively what I tried to explore in my presentation. And so I tried to develop a way in which these seven notions, principles, universals, if you like, that are there in every religion, take different forms. And to use the spiral dynamics model, uh, because that's reasonably simple, how do these seven principles take different forms at purple, red, blue, orange, green, yellow, turquoise? And what we see is that these seven principles morph into different shapes, if you like, as they move up the spiral. And this basic story of loss and redemption that you see everywhere, that story becomes more and more subtle and in some ways more and more complex as we evolve. It's the same basic story, but it takes more complex forms. So that, that's the rough sort of outline or contours, if you like, of what, what my presentation was about. Yeah, and um, so I thought you did a really good job, actually, in in this kind of universal plot that you that you get at, because, you know, it's really interesting. I studied I studied religion um, in college and took a lot of the anthropology, basically, of religion. And uh, I took a whole class called the interpretation of religion, in which we basically just spend the whole semester reading all the different theorists from Emil Durkheim to Clifford Geertz to, you know, Iana Kone, just all, all these different people who with their different theories about how do we, because, you know, like many um, subjects in the humanities, there's sort of this definitional crisis, you know, like, oh, what are we even studying this sort of thing? Like, how do, can we even abstract anything and everything's so different, uh, kind of coming out of a lot of the postmodern particularization and uh, kind of focus on, on specificity uh, at the expense of universals, that sort of a thing. Um, and uh, actually, there, just as an aside, and I always thought this was funny and didn't understand the importance of it at the time, but there was in the, in the, on the wall of the religion department kind of conference room, there was this sort of area that you could tell there used to be a picture there and, and for like many years, but it was no longer there. Um, and uh, someone pointed it out to me, you know, because it kind of had that kind of square discoloration. And they're like, yeah, there used to be a, a, a picture of uh, uh, Mircea Eliade hanging there for a long time. But, uh, you know, we kind of got rid of him. And it sort of summarized so much of kind of the anti-comparative, anti-universal, uh, you know, kind of perspective at the time. But, uh, but the reason why I bring all that up is I thought that you actually did a really brilliant job at finding this sort of, you know, broadly applicable universal plot, despite all the differences that are certainly there in the different religious traditions. And so, um, you know, as you say, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a way of doing it. So like the word like spirit can, can more or less kind of be used to understand this kind of abstract concept that the different religions are, are articulating in different ways. Um, and some maybe more or less comfortable with a term like that and that sort of a thing. But broadly speaking, I thought it was, um, was really, really powerful. Uh, and 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 had a lot of kind of pragmatic utility. Um, so anyway, that being said, though, um, again, kind of pr providing this impossible task. But if you could maybe just give a very brief kind of then synopsis of what that sh what that story does then 
look like and take shape as as it kind of evolves to the different uh, to the different uh, you know value means. Sure, I'll do my best. Uh, maybe I'll do a couple or three or four levels at a time, and we can take sure. a pause because it, there's quite a lot there. So what I'll do is I'll start at the level which in spiral dynamics we call purple, uh, which we generally is the level of tribal consciousness, magic, shamanism, and so on. So what I'll do is I'll just mention the two or three really pertinent principles at each level. So spirit at this level would be seen as the realm of the spirits, the ancestors, the spirits. This is the realm the shaman journeys into, the magician um, taps into. And our suffering at this level is essentially because we're in some way out of favor with these spirits. And that can bring upon us what shamans or magicians may refer to as curses or soul loss or you know, whatever. And the way back to what, what I would call in very general terms salvation or freedom from that suffering would be to placate these spirits, to, to get the blessings of our ancestors, to clear these curses. And if we succeed in doing that, then we will live a safe and loyal life within the tribe with which we identify ourselves. So that's purple. Then I think what happens is, as we continue to evolve, we, human consciousness develops a sense of separate ego and quite a strong sense of separate ego. And there is an allure of freedom, a, a desire to be free from the constraints of this tribe. And that moves us into the next level, which is what spiral dynamics would refer to as red, the red level, which is the level of the, the egocentric level, the level of domination, the level of power, the level of the warrior, the warrior consciousness. So at this level, the spirit would be typically seen as the power gods. So the, the realm of the spirits that we had at purple has become a bit more transcendent, a bit more distant and therefore a bit more powerful in some sense and that mirrors the way our own self has um, dissociated itself more from our own body and nature because we see spirit as a projection of our own self to some degree i want to come back uh, to that as a just to, to throw that in there but yeah anyway sorry keep yeah. going no great and um so at, at the red level we have this realm of the power gods and suffering at this level comes from a loss of power a loss of respect. It's all about power and respect at this level. And salvation at this level would come from one, one typical way would be to pacify these power gods. So I'll, I'll give you a, an example. Perhaps in, in the Vedic Hinduism, you'd have a, a whole pantheon of deities, each of which are responsible for a different aspect of your life. So suffering comes because you're not able to get the power or the respect that these deities can offer you. So you pacify these power gods and you their power is transferred to you in some sense. And you're able to operate in a life of power and respect, which is what the ego at this level craves for. And the way that manifests itself in day-to-day -day living is self-love. Love at this level is mainly self-love. It's, it's all about yourself, your, your newly emerged ego with which we become enamored at this, at this stage. Um, then another transition comes along, which is once we've identified with the separate ego, 
we start to realize that we're going to die because what we now identify with is mortal and it's going to die. A fear of death can come in. A desire for a greater security can arise. And this can lead to the next level, which is the level of, which is blue in spiral dynamics, which is the level of the traditional religion. And this is where, when most people say religion, they're usually talking about or thinking about this level, which is the blue level. So here, spirit is often seen as one kind, one transcendent order. So all these different power gods have resolved into some kind of oneness. And it, it can either be a one monotheistic God, as we see in the Abrahamic traditions, or it could be some kind of transcendent oneness or emptiness, as we see in the Eastern traditions. And suffering arises here, or is perceived here, because we're not aligned with this transcendent oneness in, in some sense. Either we're disobeying the commandments of that one God, which you see in the Bible, for example, or we are failing to realize our true identity as that oneness, which you'd see in Hinduism, for example, and there's various variations on that. So here at Blue, salvation would be or would come from aligning ourselves with this one transcendent order, either through obedience and forgiveness, if we're talking about a personal God, or through some kind of mystical experience, enlightenment, awakening, if we're talking about um, a more impersonal oneness or emptiness. Um, and typically, a life lived at this level would manifest in terms of duty, honor, morality, traditional morality, and, and so on. So those are the sort of three pre-rational levels before we move into rationality. So did you want to take a quick break there? And maybe... I think actually this is a great pace. I think you're kind of uh, okay. concisely doing it. So I think we could probably go all the way up and then, uh, and then kind of uh, reflect um, once you've kind of gone through them all. Yeah, this is good. Okay, great. It's not too fast. It's about right. No, again, I think that people who really want to get more into the details could check out the presentation, but I think just kind of providing sort of a basic sense of, of the progression um, so that people tuning into just this can kind of, we can have some stuff to work with. Um, and then of course, you know, beyond the presentation, there's many other materials that kind of could explore this kind of same terrain, which um, we can talk about and I can link to and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, just for this purpose, I think this is a really good uh, sort of pace. So yeah, keep going. Okay, great. So as we reach the end of blue, um, transition factors to the next level can include education. We learn about science, we learn about history, we question some of the dogmas of blue. We see some of the contradictions in blue religions, in the teachings, between the teachings and the, and the followers. Maybe we, we want to have a, a more comfortable material life than religious people often have. And this can lead to the emergence of um, orange, what um, in spiral dynamics we call orange, which is the, the level of rationality, the, le the level of materialism, typically. And here, spirit, now, this is, this is a level that's not typically seen as religious, but the essential story of loss and redemption still seems to exist even at this level, because we, we still have a sense of losing something of value and regaining something of value, some kind of meaning. So I think at this level, spirit tends to be seen as the material world, the empirical world, matter, energy, the cosmos. 
in physical terms. And suffering tends to be seen in terms of not making the best of the opportunities that a material life can give you. So this can be seen as poverty or illness or unhappiness. Happiness is kind of the big thing here. We, we want to make the best of our life and be happy. And the way we, salvation at this level, the way we end suffering or reduce suffering at this level would be to use science and use reason and use technology and modern medicine and, and democracies and capitalism to get all the things that the material world can offer us, uh, specifically health, wealth, progress. And this would manifest in a life lived in terms of mutual respect, respect for other people's achievements. They respect me for my achievements. And the world tends to be seen as a meritocracy at this level. So um, again, typically we wouldn't refer to this as a, as a religion typically, but we can see the same story playing itself out of loss and redemption. Um, now orange starts to wind down for a number of reasons it can do. Um, one possible reason is that mystical experiences of various kinds can break through. Nature mysticism typically can often happen at, at this level. People can often find themselves getting bored with merely material pursuits. And some kind of existential angst can, can kick in as well. You know, is this all there is? I've got my cars, I've got my houses, everyone respects me, everybody admires me. Now what? And this can often lead to a transition to the next level, which um, is referred to as green in spiral dynamics, which is the postmodern relativistic level, typically, we can call it. Also, it's the romantic level, the existential level. So at this level, we've, we've often outgrown our belief in traditional religion to a large extent that's been deconstructed in orange. But we're still, we're still aching for something spiritual now, and we want something spiritual beyond merely material pursuits. And a typical way that can manifest at green is spirit now is seen as the harmony of the cosmos. I look at nature, it's harmonious, it's beautiful. Just that going with the flow of nature and everything in nature being in harmony with itself, that's a typical way. It's not the only way, but that's a typical way that green could understand and perceive spirit. So suffering at this level would often be analyzed or interpreted in terms of disharmony. We're, we're, we're out of alignment with the universe. We're not living in harmony with nature. We're not living in harmony with other people. People at this level often can want to go back to nature, go and live in more natural surroundings, live in communes, go, go, go back and live in harmony with trees and rivers and mountains. And that's where they start to see spirit now. It's instead of this transcendent God or emptiness, green often perceives spirit now as very imminent in this world as the processes of nature of which we are a part, but which we have in some way dissociated from or suppressed or repressed. So salvation at this level is obviously to find a way back to that harmony with the universe, harmony with people. So typical kind of terms that uh, this level would use to denote 
the salvation, universal salvation, would be equality between people, love, tolerance, going with the flow, living in the moment, the power of now. This is the kind of language and thinking that you would find at Green. And it's, it's the emergence, if you like, of a new kind of spirituality that wasn't, that's quite different from the pre-rational levels, but still enacting the same intuitions. These, these universals are, if you like, almost inbuilt intuitions that we have. And these intuitions are now taking a very different form at green than they would have at red or blue, purple, red or blue. Again, uh, as with every level, some kind of dissatisfaction can um, enter the picture as we move to the higher, higher aspects of green. Um, we can start to see the failure of the counterculture. Why is it these incredible insights from the 1960s didn't change the world? The world doesn't seem any better, it seems worse in some ways. So counterculture can disillusion us. Um, there are two very major pathologies in which can arise out of green. And I think we see both of those a lot in the world. One is nihilism and one is narcissism. So um, nihilism can arise because at this level, typically, um, we would view everybody's point of view as being equally valid. Well, that, that's true for you and that's true for you and that's true for me. And we lose sight we, as we fall into this extreme relativism, which can happen. We can reach a stage where, well, there's, there's nothing to ground us anymore. There's no, there's nothing absolute. There's nothing that's really true in any sense. And that can lead to nihilism, the sense that, well, actually nothing really has any meaning except for the meanings that I invent. And that, that can be a, quite a, an unhealthy version of green. And another way in which green can manifest in a way, it's the opposite, is narcissism. Uh, so if your point of view is valid for you and mine is just as valid for me, then you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to believe or say, this is true for me. I'm going to do whatever I want. And don't you dare question anything that I have to say. Narcissism. Um, and also, we can feel very disconnected at this level because everybody's got their own path. Everybody's got their own view. So some kind of desire to see how this all can integrate into some kind of whole can arise at this level. Otherwise, we, we can be living quite a fragmented life. A lot of fragmentation can be there in our perception. And this can give rise to the next level, which uh, we refer to as yellow, which is sort of the level of developmentalism systems, the integral level, typically we can, we can call that. At this level, we start to perceive that all these different views and paths and um, points of view that we just saw as disconnected in green, actually, there is a pattern that connects them all. It's, they're not just arbitrary fragments. There is an underlying pattern that connects, and that pattern is the pattern of development. Different views, all these different views that we're now considering to be valid for the person who's holding them, start to be seen as manifestations of different levels of development. In a way, that's what we're doing now. We're, we're actually engaging in yellow integral thinking in a way. We're seeing that all these different views 
occur at different levels of development. And that developmentalism becomes a pattern that connects these the fragments of green. So here, spirit would be seen or could be seen as the evolving cosmos. If development is the pattern that connects, the whole cosmos is evolving. And our own evolution or the evolution of humanity or the evolution of different views is just a, a, a reflection of that big picture, the big picture of evolution. And suffering can arise because either we're not sufficiently developed to be able to deal with the complexity of the life conditions that we're facing, or the level of development that we have adapted to, we have adapted to in quite an unhealthy way. So salvation at this level is can be one of two things, either translation, which is to remain at the same level of development, but move to a more healthy form of that level, or transformation, which would be to find ways to transform to higher and more complex levels of development that are more appropriate to the conditions that we're actually facing in life. And love at this level would manifest as giving people space for their own evolutionary journey. We're all on our own journeys. Everybody has the right to be at whatever level of development they wish to be. We give people the space for their own journey, but we've overcome the, uh, the nihilism and the narcissism of green because we've seen this pattern that connects. And then as yellow starts to wind down, what we, I think, start to feel or perceive in high yellow is a desire to go beyond mere conceptualization and intellectualization. Because everything I've said there in yellow is quite intellectual. And even at yellow, it can be perceived largely intellectually. But I think a desire arises to actually reconnect with one's body, with one's emotions, with one's community, or with a community, and start to experience physically, emotionally, at the level of feeling, what we're merely cognizing at yellow. And I think that gives rise to turquoise, which is, I think, probably the highest level we have any significant evidence for at the moment. And we can refer to that maybe as the the holistic level or the, the level of collective consciousness. So here, we spirit tends to be seen as the cosmos, the cosmos as now as a holistic organism. So it's, it's still an evolving cosmos, but it's no longer um, quite as impersonal as perhaps it was at yellow. We can now relate to the cosmos as this growing holistic organism. Um, and suffering can come, uh, can be perceived at this level as an inadequate integration within our organism, within society, and between us, society, and the cosmos at large. So because we're now seeing things in holistic terms and feeling things in holistic terms, what is now required is a true integration at every level and every aspect of life. And salvation at this level essentially would be a true healthy integration of all the different aspects of our being. Cognition, emotion, instinct, energy, spirit. All of these would be ideally 
um, integrated into a, a holistic whole so that the organism and society as a whole, if you like, becomes almost a, a microcosm of this mm -hmm. holistic organism, which is the cosmos at large. And the way we would manifest that in our life is to be feeling this conscious, energetic connection with others, with nature, with the universe, within ourselves. And I think that's sort of the, the leading edge of development at the moment, where we are at the moment. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's a, a very, very quick summary of how spirituality, religion can, can evolve through these different Perfect. No, that was that was uh, brilliantly done and, and a perfect, I think, um, gives us kind of the, the scope of things to be able to then get into some of this. Um, just a few things I wanted to throw in there. Um, so, yeah, you're using a spiral dynamics framework. Um, but at the same time, this this isn't limited to uh, just that framework. I mean, uh, uh, spiral dynamics is a particular developmental, uh, yeah, kind of toolkit. Um, but these stages that you're referring to. Uh, have also been, you know, seen and, and explored and mapped by other developmental theorists. Of course, spiral dynamics being work based on the work of Claire Graves, but then you've got people like, you know, Robert Keegan, there's a clear line there, and Susan Cook-Greuter, and many other developmental theorists, so that this isn't, um, while spiral dynamics as a model can, can do a good job of kind of color coding these different stages, this is really a developmental psychological uh, evolution uh, that occurs for for human beings that, that we we you know progress through these stages um, and and increase in complexity um, and and sort of nuance and kind of are continually reframing the world as we develop through life. Um, so yeah, that being said, so it, it, I, one I guess I just wanted to throw that out there um, just for its own sake. And but at, at the same time to acknowledge that this is this is really a kind of universal plot. This is a universal human story as human mm -hmm. beings change and develop through the world, and then uh, those changes uh, map onto how they relate to spiritual ideas and religious traditions and whatnot. So okay, so a couple of things I wanted to kind of ask you about and get your your take on. Um, one is this is a story of sorts. I think that that's why, one of the reasons why I find it so compelling is, um, you know, I got really interested in the idea of Hegel, let's say, um, you know, he has this phenomenology of spirit and uh, he was a philosopher writing, you know, in the early uh, 1800s. And, and a lot of the basic, the, you know, uh, basic ideas of what he was talking about, that sort of spirit was evolving and it's, you know, you can see it happening in culture and, and, and that basically spirit is sort of seeking this absolute self-awareness and this sort of thing. It really, um, it spoke to me as being like, uh, like I, I resonated a lot with that. But then when I started reading, say, the phenomenology of spirit, it was very odd. It was sort of like, well, wait, why does that lead to that? And it seemed like a bit kind of arbitrary and random. And what I, one of the things that personally I find so compelling in, in this articulation is that you have a similar kind of idea of the evolution of spirit, but it's a lot more logically consistent. And it's also sort of empirically valid. It's something that we as individuals go through. Um, the idea that this is a narrative, uh, you know, when you think about religions of the past, uh, there's there, there are often biblical texts, stories, and narratives that kind of uh, give them a lot of um, a, a lot of their emotional and psychological uh, kind of power, I think. Um, 
And, and so I, thinking of this sort of evolution of spirit as a narrative like that, I was wondering if that's a, a, a way that you, that you yourself relate to this, um, if there are any potential pitfalls of thinking about this as its own religious narrative. Um, yeah. So um, I, I would say that one of the reasons why it can be so powerful to think of this, uh, the religious intuitions of humanity in terms of a story, either the, the story of these seven principles that I've outlined or the story of development itself is because one of the fundamental filters through which we perceive reality is time, um, and specifically linear time. For much of our history, we've seen um, reality in terms of linear time, and prior to that, more in terms of cyclical time. And so I think that's going to filter even our very search for meaning and even our very perception that we've lost some kind of meaning and we need to regain it it's all going to be tend to be it's going to tend to be um frameworked in an understanding of time as one of the fundamental variables through which we perceive reality and so and i think this changes i think as we move to high yellow and into turquoise i think our perception of time itself starts to change. I think linear time itself starts to um, unwind to some degree as conceptual thinking starts to unwind. So the very notion that the very notion that there's a story being told here, developmentally or personally, I think itself is, and this is going to sound slightly paradoxical, but the notion of development itself comes out of a particular level of development, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was gonna say too that that it's also then easy for the idea of development as a story to then sort of be kind of downward assimilated to maybe blue level ways of thinking of, oh, now this mm -hmm. is just our new uh, kind of scripture, gospel, what have you. And, and, yes. and so um, that's sort of a potential pitfall, but maybe also, well, I'll save some of these questions maybe when we maybe for a later point when we can really get into some of the nitty gritty here. But there, I'm 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 very interested by the whole way that this developmental model itself becomes developmentally reflected, as you were. You can kind of take this way of thinking, and you know, uh, Zach Stein's done work on this in terms of thinking about developmental models through the lens of developmental models and how they get sort of um, you know potentially uh, deformed or at least reshaped in, at the different uh, stages. Um, but, uh, well, let me, let me, let me change tack, uh, before maybe exploring some of that. Um, you mentioned at the, at the outset, uh, that spirit is sort of, um, a, a projection of, of our own self at, at these different stages, uh, which to me is a really compelling idea. Um, and it's one, of course, that, uh, Jung makes a lot of, um, in his, his idea of God is, uh, God is in some ways the archetype of, of the self, capital S, and so I wanted, yeah, say more about that, um, how you think about that uh, is, is self and spirit sort of co-evolving or maybe even being, I don't know, potentially different words for the same thing. But yeah, I wanted to get your ideas on that. 
Yeah, I think I would say spirit and self are co-evolving, yes. Um, in a way, when we, our perception of spirit, I mean, I mean, let me define spirit in very general terms as that, I mean, I'll follow Paul Tillich, that, that which is of the ultimate concern to us, uh, or that which is ultimate in some sense. Um, if we're going to perceive spirit at all, or talk about spirit at all, we have no choice but to do it through the filter of our own self, because there is no other filter available. Our own self, what we perceive ourselves to be, the structure of our self-identity is the only window we have through which to perceive whatever it is that we are considering to be that which is of the ultimate concern. So spirit and self must necessarily reflect each other, but by the very structure of cognition and perception. Um, but speaking from a more non-dual point of view, uh, spirit and self ultimately, I think, are two aspects of the same process or entity. The, the, the difference between them is not absolute. In a sense, the difference between them when perceived or experienced is what leads to suffering in the first place. So what we're trying to do through this journey is to reconnect spirit and self in some sense, not necessarily in a, in a radically non-dual way, but, but that reconnection taken to its logical limit, as you see perhaps in the non-dual traditions of the East, would be that spirit ultimately is self. So it's that same composite reality, if you like, that spirit self vector that's morphing through time yeah. or seeming to morph through time Yeah. Uh, uh, as, as we play this game of development. Yeah. A um, couple things there. One, and this was, this has been something I've wanted to ask uh, about this then is, let me see if I can phrase it correctly. Um, is spirit, huh, is, does spirit have its own kind of perspective on this story of development? Uh, like, is there, you know, the way that Hegel might talk about spirit, right? You get this sense that it's like this, it's, it is kind of out there and it's kind of working through us, but it's sort of, you know, coming into self recognition and awareness and that sort of thing that to the sense that you can speak of spirit as an object to us, but as also kind of a subject. So yeah. one of the ways I'm, I'm intrigued by this whole narrative um, is, is the way of at least framing it as the idea of a, of, of spirit itself evolving by means okay. of us. But at the same time, I, I sense a danger there, potentially language kind of getting in the way. We're sort of reifying this thing that we're really talking about as our own development, and we're sort of projecting it and calling it this other thing. So, um, yeah, talk a little bit about that. I mean, if, if you get the sense of that question. Yeah, I do. Yes. I mean, I would say now speaking from a, a sort of Hindu background on this, I would say that we can talk. And remember, this is very metaphoric, metaphorical talk. Um, spirit, if you like, we can say has two aspects, uh, which we can refer to as the transcendent and the immanent aspect. The I think the transcendent aspect doesn't get involved or lost in the whole story of development. The transcendent aspect always remains transcendent. It always remains free of all of this. 
but the imminent aspect of spirit loses itself in this story of development. Again, speaking metaphorically, it forgets who it really is or he or she really is and loses itself through some kind of process of involution, speaking mythically now, uh, right down to, you know, a matter and then through a process of rediscovery, matter to life, to mind, to soul, to spirit, rediscovers and re-remembers who he, she, it really is. And we are part of that instrument through which spirit is remembering itself. So our true identity, which we forget because we overlay all these other contractions on top of it, is spirit in the process of re-remembering itself. But at the same time, spirit has also, in its transcendent aspect, never truly forgotten who he, she, or it is. So that's one way to frame yeah. this, I think. Yeah. And again, though, it's sort of maybe the nature of it is just that it it, um, it, it inherently is an ineffable, an, an ineffable sort of reality, mm. such that mm. language both clarifies but also obscures these sorts of things because i feel like maybe my my even question here of of you know yes but is that just a mythical representation of what's happening maybe that question itself is sort of misguided as though like well inherently yes it it, it is and it, it has to be um but at the same time i think our our myths can be more or or less um <laughs> misrepresentative of ultimate reality let's say and so um i'm i'm intrigued by um yeah uh and, and and this is where this links back up with this way that this developmental narrative gets developmentally lensed such that well we can express this mythically we can say that you know god has fallen asleep and and we're all god's dream and trying to wake up to our god self right that's that's like a myth but it kind of works in a, in a nice sort of purple register um and yet you know uh, so there's there's a way in which this developmental narrative, um, yeah, can be expressed a, a, across the whole spiral. Um, yeah, go ahead. I, I think I think this kind of mythical story, the difference between the way purple, red, blue would use this myth, and perhaps we can use this myth, say yellow turquoise can use this myth, is that purple, red, blue would take it to be very literally true, whereas we are using it and being very aware that it is myth and that it's pointing to something that is beyond words, beyond concepts, beyond time. But because we exist to some degree in space and time, we have no choice but to speak in mythical terms. Right. Even if we want to speak in terms of what in integral we call post-metaphysical spirituality, even, even in that domain, however careful we are, there's a certain element of myth that cannot be avoided. So it seems we're stuck with, by the very nature of language and conceptual thinking, yeah. we can't get away mm -hmm. from myth entirely, but we can be aware of what we're doing. And we live as if it is true, mm -hmm. but we also know that it's not literally true. Yeah, for sure. No, and I, I, I personally choose to sort of lean into that and then say, well, this is sort of a, a necessity let's make it a beautiful one and kind of ensure that our myths are one, mm -hmm. both as compelling and beautiful as possible, but also, yeah, can, can have built into them, hopefully the, um, at least the, the emphasis on not taking them literally, <laughs> let's say, so that the myth itself kind of, it, it, you know, encodes its own uh, deciphering in some way. 
Um, yes. But but to, back then to the notion of self and spirit kind of being unitive or 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 the same. Um, then uh, so so you know one way of then thinking about this is that what I experience as my subjective reality is a first person uh, kind of phenomenal uh, experience of consciousness, which is going through this developmental process, becoming more hopefully nuanced and, and enriched and complexified um, to the end, presumably that if and when I should ever experience that unitive state of, oh, you know, I am spirit. I, I don't experience that as, oh, there's spirit, you know, like, oh, yes, wow, I've gone, you know, to some transcendent realm and like there's there's spirit on the throne or something. It's like I that unitive thing comes into or maybe out of would be a better expression, um, my own subjective inward state of experience. Um, mm -hmm. And that one of the ways that I conceive of this whole developmental narrative is that we're continually withdrawing projections. We're continually thinking that like we are you know, we're, we're uh, you know, that, that the spirits, you know, are out there, they're in the woods, they're in the trees, or that the gods are above us or what have you. And sort of the narrative seems to be increasingly telling us like, no, it's, it's here, it's here, it's here until it's, you know, it's, it's here. Um, and uh, so, yeah, then, then I guess that kind of leads directly actually to the mystical state of Unia Mystica and the union with that. And so, uh, um, yeah, and then then you're into the whole non-dual realm, essentially, uh, which I, which then becomes problematic. Do we speak about this as a developmental stage, or do we speak about this as in a different way? Of course, in in, in Wilbur, there's states as well as stages. Um, the relationship to of which to each other has always been uh, kind of not fully fleshed out in my mind. So um, anyway, any, any, any element of everything I've just said, if you want to yeah, grab any lots, part of it and go with it, go for it. Yeah, sure. Lot, lots there to, to flesh out. Um, in the integral model, one very useful part of that model is what Wilbur calls the four quadrants, which you must be familiar with. And the four quadrants, if you like, arise out of two primary dualisms, which is the internal versus the external, interior, exterior, and the one and the many. And I think that as we develop these two sets of dualisms, always seem to be present. Um, but as we move, I think, to much higher levels of development, we could, we could speculate, uh, I think those dualisms themselves start to become, uh, start to be overcome. So the very distinction between internal and external starts to dissolve. The very distinction between one and many starts to dissolve. And the quadrants, if you like, dissolve into emptiness or dissolve into spirit. So we, we would no longer see spirit as object in the way we might conceive it mythically because there's no longer a subject and an object left by the time we've reached union with the divine. And is it one God or is it many gods that these questions also will start to lose their meaning because these dualisms have started to fade away. And I think one of the ways this happens is our filters also start to become dissolved. It's our filters, our cognitive filters that are creating these dualisms. And as we develop, our filtering process becomes less and less. So we, we 
if, if I can talk this way, and again, this is this is mythical, but we stand in front of a very naked reality. We see reality for what it really is. Uh, and it's us. It's no different from us. Um, as for um, the second part of what you're saying, which is um, non-duality and the relationship between non-duality and the stages, um, there are writers such as Aurobindo in the East, it, it, to some degree, uh, uh, de Chardin in the, in the West, uh, Plotinus in, in, in some degree in the West, um, that would talk about union with the divine as being at the end of some kind of process of development or process of ascent. Um, I tend to think that the state stage model is actually more representative of what happens in most cases. I think in most cases we have these temporary experiences of psychic subtle cause or non-dual and then we have no choice but to interpret them afterwards or even while they're going on we don't really know to what degree we're constructing them on the basis of the level of development that we've reached which effectively are the tools with which we can construct and interpret our experience we have no choice so if someone has a if a hindu has a a causal experience and a Christian has a causal experience, they're going to interpret them differently, not only in terms of their belief system, but, but maybe in terms of their development. As for whether we actually move on past turquoise into higher and higher stages, third tier, fourth tier, and eventually reach some kind of permanent stage rather than a state of the non-dual, I think that's probably speculative at the moment. I think we don't really know that. It, it, it makes sense, it's plausible. I'm inclined to that belief, but I think we probably don't have quite enough evidence yet of what really happens post-Turquoise in yeah. terms of stages. Can you see that? Uh, yes. Great. So this is just a, one possible way we can understand non-duality. So in Buddhist terms, the two fundamental aspects of duality or emptiness and form. So we have form there on the on the right, um, which is anything that we can actually experience as an object. And we have emptiness on the left, which is essentially the reification of the insight that nothing is permanent and nothing has permanent essence. In Hindu terms, that the same kind of duality can be spoken of as consciousness and light. So we have consciousness, which is always present, uh, throughout form and beyond form and all form is really just um, an expression of light or energy and these two ultimately are non-dual so at the bottom there we've got conscious light emptiness is form so conscious light or emptiness is form is the true non-dual nature of reality as a whole and evolution and involution development it all takes place on the right side of that circle. It all takes place within form. So within form there, we've got gross, subtle, causal. That's all within the realm of form. And while all the involution, evolution is going on in that right side, emptiness and consciousness is always already the case on the left side. But really, the left and right are one in a way that we can't really conceptualize very easily. 
So that's one way of looking at or depicting non-duality. Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, question then, I mean, we're at the upper reaches here. So we're sort of both, we've sort of in some ways left uh, some of the things we were talking about behind, but potentially kind of led to or mm. arrived at where they're leading. Um, how do I frame this question? Um, there's a couple things here. One is, so thinking of emptiness as consciousness, and, and I know that Wilbur does talk about that too, that basically consciousness is the sort of the space in which, you know, these things are kind of un unfolding. Um, but then maybe it's not the most uh, felicitous turn of phrase to speak of the evolution of consciousness. It's more like the evolution of forms occurring mm. within the field of consciousness. I, I know Wilbur talks about this idea at some point, and I kind of forget where he lands on all this because he does make a distinction, I believe, between sort of uh, the altitude of that emptiness or something like that. Um, but, mm -hmm. but, but I don't know, clarify that a little bit in terms of what then is evolving. Is it just the forms that are then able to do much more interesting things with consciousness um, or yeah. Well, I think the word consciousness is used in two different ways here. So the consciousness on the left side of the model, that is divine consciousness or ultimate consciousness. The consciousness that's developing on the right side is personal consciousness. That's, that is the consciousness of a particular form. Whereas the consciousness on the left is the consciousness that underlies all form. But they're not entirely unrelated either, because mm. the consciousness on the right is the result of the consciousness on the left misidentifying itself with a particular form. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way, you can think of this as the transcendent and the imminent consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they um, both coexist. Then another question that this was leading mm -hmm. me to was, um, if um, our, our individual forms of consciousness... Um, are in the realm of form and they are what is essentially complexifying. Yep. There's, a, there's, a, there's a question here for me when, let's say when we think about what happens at death, um, which not to open up a whole new can of worms, I guess, but um, presuming, let's say that um, uh, it is a big can of worms, isn't it? But um, you know, if, if our consciousness on the right, I'm sorry, on the, on the yes on the right um which is in the realm of form basically and by that i guess i mean the consciousness that is um occurring by means of the complex formulations that my brain is allowing for in you know bounded experiences and a very kind of you know there's a very unique kind of consciousness that comes from a human brain that's kind of different from you know an ant brain or something right owing in large part to its complexity and so that that evolution of consciousness is happening uh with material physical correlates that you can uh -huh. see as complexifying now yeah. at death let's say when my brain dissolves and regresses from its complex state back into a simpler substance um my presumption then would be that i lose that higher state of consciousness and i would then sort of dissolve back into this you know ground of being emptiness consciousness 
Um, that would be some one way of thinking about it. Another way yeah. of thinking about it is sort of the opposite. It's more like my individual consciousness is sort of blocked off from the fullness of the emptiness consciousness, uh, you know, the divine consciousness. And that when I die, I lose the limited nature of my individual form. And then I'm sort of dissolved into that kind of, you know, Brahman of, of kind of infinite consciousness. Um, you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> you know, is it, right. is it an either, or um, am I getting, which, which do you, which way of framing that do you think is, 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 is a more, more accurate uh, is uh you know, is, is my individual, because if developmentally I'm moving closer towards this divine consciousness, it would seem to rely on greater and greater complexity. If at the same time, it's sort of pre-complex and sort of the ground of all complexity, then I'm not, then, then I could dissolve all of my complexity and then be grounded back in it. But then I would seem to lose all of what I think of as being the highly complex nature of my individual consciousness. So, um, yeah, how do we think best about, about this sort of dilemma? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult one. Um, one way I think about it is that any unit of, of being, so we're all units of being, if you like, moving around in the right side of this we're all moving around and living in, in in the realm of form we our consciousness our personal consciousness has a gross subtle and causal aspect at any moment right now you and i we have a gross subtle and causal aspect to our personal consciousness because we are microcosms of the whole so when we die the physical death it's the gross aspect of our consciousness that disintegrates and falls away. We could speculate that the subtle aspect of our consciousness, and this would be what the Hindu Buddhist tradition would teach, the subtle aspect of our consciousness continues to exist in some form without being tethered to a gross aspect. Uh, and that subtle aspect of our consciousness is what we would refer to as the soul. So the gross aspect is the body, the subtle aspect would be the soul, and the causal aspect would be the spirit. And when, we, when we're living on this earth, all three of those are present in any moment. But upon death, the gross aspect, the body dies, but the subtle aspect would, if we want to use the model of reincarnation, reattach itself to another gross aspect and begin a new, a new birth. And there would be some, because everything we do in a, in a lifetime, including all of our developmental attainments, affect our being at every level, gross, subtle, and causal. Our developmental attainments, in some sense, would leave a trace in our soul. So when we reincarnate into a new gross aspect in the next life, then we wouldn't have lost everything that we would have achieved developmentally in yeah. the previous life. And, it, and that, that's probably the meaning of the word karma. Now that, that's, that's one way of looking at it. I'm not saying sure. that's the truth, but that would be one way of looking at it in this model. I am, I am curious too, though, because everything on this right hand side here mm. would have um, all four quadrants going on as yes. well, arguably, right? Yes. So that means that every, hypothetically, all subtle phenomena have um, basically exterior correlates they have you know and so i think that that's also a distinction that that is a little hard for me to wrap my head around i often it's easy to kind of conflate the gross 
with the material and the subtle with sort of like the the immaterial or the spiritual but mm-hmm. that isn't the case that, that would be that that the subtle and the causal are going to have some kind of correlates that presumably you could study measure um mm-hmm. they're intersubjectively verifiable etc and is the belief just that currently we we don't necessarily know how to do that or i mean i, I would presume that there's not some kind of um philosophically you know uh it's not that they're like transcendentally removed from all possible empirical explanation or, or a, sorry a study necessarily i would think right um so how do we understand the subtle and the causal is related to being what we think of as, as material and, and physical if we um based on the quadrants if we say that the quadrants go all the way up and all the way down then you're right um we're even at the subtle level and the causal level, we, we're going to need all four quadrants. So the problem then is, well, what are the upper right quadrants in relation to the subtle? Because the upper right quadrants are the measurable exterior phenomena. The According to the traditions, uh, Vedanta in particular, and Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, that upper right quadrant, it, would, it wouldn't use the language of quadrants, but this is what it's saying. The upper right quadrant, which we normally depict as being our gross body, our gross brain, there's also a subtle version of the upper right quadrant, which the traditions would refer to as your subtle body. So the subtle realm is not disembodied, and the soul is not disembodied. The soul would exist both as the interior higher mind and also as the exterior subtle body. And it's that composite that would transmigrate uh, and attach itself or incarnate through a new gross mind and gross sure. body. But that, that would be the way it would be constructed. Right. Yeah, I guess for me, the question is just, well, we have a lot of scientific means and, mm-hmm. and measures for the gross body. But um, mm-hmm. as far as I know of, there's no way to measure or study or empirically intersubjectively validate, you know, like subtle phenomena. Um, I, I could be I, wrong I about that. I, no, I agree. There isn't. Yeah. And the way that I'm framing it here is quite, as we spoke before, it's it's got to be taken as a mythical representation, a way of talking about something that actually is very difficult to talk about. I yeah. think in a way, this is sort of blue orange language that I'm using here. I think when we if, if we really wanted to use rigorous yellow turquoise language, then I think the framing would have to be quite different because we wouldn't really be talking in terms of things and events that happen through yeah. time. We wouldn't be talking in terms of, um, we'd have to talk in post-metaphysical terms. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Um, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, and yeah, there's a lot there uh, for sure, but that's that's helpful for thinking about it. Of course, yeah, when you're trying to get at uh, kind of profound metaphysical or post-metaphysical realities, um, you know, 2D graphics are going to be losing a lot in translation and that sort of a thing, but um, but very interesting. Just going back to the model of how religion evolves through the levels, I found it quite useful to think, really, to conclude that entire presentation, that we, we can think of religion as a field that isn't confined to any one level. And I think from a turquoise position, we can, if you like, 
turn around and look back and see how these different fields are evolving and moving through time as they evolve. And that, I think, requires a turquoise cognition before we can really do that and feel that. Um, but I think that's essential to do if we're going to do religion justice. So religion isn't just something that's blue, that's in the past, that, that's not relevant anymore. Those existential concerns are present throughout development. And we, we can only really see that and honor that, I think, if we see religion as a cross-paradigmatic universal that tra transverses the entire, traverses the entire spectrum of development. And we'll probably continue to do so post-Turquoise if we still think in terms of development by then. Do you think this way of thinking about religion can and will find its way into the academy at any point? Or do you find, uh, because when I was in my program, it was, it was very, as my, as, as my little anecdote, you know, suggested, it was very kind of green, very postmodern. Um, uh, it's hard for me to envision, uh, and this is sad because I think it would be of great use, but it's hard for me to envision you know, like a, the, the religion department in, in a liberal arts university kind of, you know, doing a course that kind of looks at uh, religion this way. And yet, again, I think it could be incredibly valuable. Uh, do you think that, that that will happen or or, or do we need like new, different and new institutions to be able to deal with this material in this way? I, mean, I think um, if what the developmental models are predicting is accurate, then uh, at the moment, if it's the green level that's dominating the humanities in universities, and green is very suspicious of any kind of grand narrative, which, which can lead to fragmentation of, it, of its own, which I think it has in academia. But if development continues in academia itself, which I think perhaps it must do in due course, simply because people evolve and those people will find their ways to academia, then maybe oh, there will be a way back at some point for this kind of narrative to re-emerge, but in a way that's different from blue-orange, in that we, we hold it lightly. We don't take it literally as blue-orange would take it. We, we, we know that this is just a hermeneutic tool. Um, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm hopeful that that could find a way back into academia, as academia itself evolves and develops. Well, and to bring back this question that I, I touched on earlier and wanted to return to this issue of thinking about the developmental model developmentally <laughs> and how that gets um, interpreted at the different stages in different ways. Um, what I'm really intrigued by and sort of what I've taken on as, as kind of a, 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 a project, a passion project um, that I, I at the moment consider probably uh, occupying me for some years to come would be to try to express this narrative, which um, I find to be deeply compelling, speaks to my own experience, speaks to so much of what I've studied about religion um, and, and all of that, um, and speaks to the need, I think, for, um, you know, the desire and the need for a narrative at this moment. You, you spoke 
to the way that green can lead into this nihilism of, of, mm. of kind of radical relativity and narcissism that comes from that. And this sort of sense of fragmentation as everyone has their own kind of micro narrative. And as many people in, you know, probably the audience watching this will know green is associated uh, with postmodernism, the, the, the value meme of, of postmodernism and green are sort of, you know, uh, yeah, they kind of map onto each other. Um, and so, I find the kind of spiritual malaise, the spiritual crisis, what John Verveke calls the meaning crisis, and what many people have been talking about for some years, um, uh, to be related to that kind of lack of a narrative. I know I experienced that my own uh, way individually. So then to finally get a sense of, oh, well, here's a way of finding or, or re-expressing an, a meaningful narrative that can do justice uh -huh. to all the, uh, all the, the, the <laughs> all the different forms of religion that have come before and be able to, as you say, kind of be that uh, pattern that connects it all um, and, and, and do all that seems to be deeply valuable for our kind of particular cultural moment. And so for me, that translates into this project of, well, how do we take this uh, narrative and how do we sort of translate it? Um, and as someone who's interested in, the arts and also religion, um, I'm really compelled by this notion of, well, what if we do articulate this narrative? Um, how would you say, uh, akin to the ways that religion or these, the different narratives have been expressed in the other value memes, uh, uh, such that, right? Like, I guess maybe to be very clear about it, like, um, what if instead of, uh, you know, your, your religious narrative being, well, uh, how do I progress along my path towards deeper meditation? Let's say, I mean, that's obviously still entirely relevant and pertinent in this context as well. Um, or how do I progress along becoming a deeper, kinder, uh, you know, more Christ-like person or what have you. There's a lot of sort of stage models that were kind of developed in uh, traditional uh, religious contexts, whether, you know, the, uh, like, I think of Bonaventure, for example, or, um, uh, you know, the, even many mystics who kind of, uh, they were still very applicable to kind of people's everyday religious life. What if there were narratives and tools, stories, um, contexts in which you were given the, the means to kind of move developmentally through these stages, right? That would sort of be an aspirational, potentially an aspirational goal, at least that the, now it's this very narrative of, of development that becomes, you know, the, the, the meta narrative and as well as a kind of particular religious narrative and expressing it in those terms. That to me seems like a very compelling idea. At the same time, it also seems potentially very fraught um, for some of the reasons we were talking about, right? Like if you try to use developmental theory, but you're using it in this sort of like blue mode or maybe even like a, a red mode, you can turn it into a weapon, you can turn it into, it can, it can, go, it can go badly very quickly. So what are your thoughts on um, the future of this narrative as a, a sort of religious narrative in our culture, what that might do and, and maybe uh, what, it, what, it, what harm it might do. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. Um, in a way, what you're talking about is a, a downward translation of, of, of an insight that originates really at yellow turquoise, but translating it downward so it becomes legitimate at some of these low, earlier levels, um, red, blue, orange, green. 
I would have to say, I theoretically, it might be possible, and we'd have to thrash out the details of how that can be done. And there's going to be a positive and a negative aspect. I think the positive aspect is that the notion of narrative itself, per se, uh, towards some kind of desirable goal, will have its own, because it's such a universal theme that seems to pervade our lives, I think we would be able to find a way to express that at every level, at every earlier level. The, the, the negative aspect is that each of those levels would obviously translate that and interpret that according to the limitations of their own level. And in doing so, they may end up with something quite different to what you're intending. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it, 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 it's sufficiently universal that I think such a project is worth thinking about, yes. Um, I, yeah. The, the, the very fact that this story exists seems to exist in some form or another at every level. The way I've presented it is just one version of that. Maybe then you could go to somebody who is red or blue, present them this, that, that bit of my PowerPoint presentation and say, well, this is, this is the meaning of your life. This is the narrative you're living. And even though they may not understand that the same narrative has different forms at other levels, they wouldn't understand that probably. They could certainly understand that this is a powerful narrative that speaks to them where they are. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I consider the fact that uh, I was 31, let's say, when I first discovered developmental theory and spiral right. dynamics and this whole kind of narrative expressed in these terms, right. um, because it's not it's not pervasive in our culture and, 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 and many different kinds of narratives uh, prevail, particularly the, the orange and the, and the blue. Um, so the kind of modernist progress myth and the kind of uh, traditional religions are sort of the dominant narratives of our day. And it can take years and a lot of sifting through and, and actually a lot of crisis too, you know? Um, And I wonder if, 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 if this material were more broadly available and more, um, more accessible throughout the different uh, memes and, and throughout the different kind of stages uh, in society, uh, if, if, if that would be of sort of existential assistance to people, right? If you're going through an existential crisis, but you're interpreting it purely from the perspective of, oh man, you know, the, the traditional religion I thought I was true is not true at all. And now I'm falling through, you know, the yeah. void. Um, if you had in the background of your knowledge somewhere, oh, wait, this was sort of accounted for somewhere. I heard about this. Oh, wait, yeah, I'm, I'm on the path. This actually isn't the end of the world. This is a, a transformation to a, a new stage. Um, I feel like that could be of incredible, mm-hmm. potentially, you know, uh, a lot of psychological uh, benefit to people. That's my intuition. Um, but again, it could also be, you know, one never knows how these sorts of things, um, you know, manifest. Uh, but actually speaking of that, that's kind of a, a good segue because, you know, that was my experience. I, I, I came from a very kind of blue traditional religious background, um, and through many things in my own kind of personal life and personal development, studying religion, as you say, that kind of transition from, from blue to orange, um, you know, went through that process of kind of transformation. And, uh, that was something that you actually wrote a book about. Uh, so I want to, I'm glad that we can kind of at least briefly speak about this, but, um, I recently got this, this is your dancing with angels book. Um, and, uh, it basically tells that sort of a narrative. And, uh, I I was kind of curious about what, what compelled you to write this narrative and 
um, and maybe potentially like what sort of applications? Uh, I don't know if you considered it, uh, you know, didactic or uh, that's probably not the right word, pedagogical maybe in some ways, or if it was just purely this is a great story. Um, but yeah, speak a little bit about that that book and how it maybe relates to some of these ideas of transitioning through the the different memes. Yes, I, I mean, the reason I wrote it, I think, is because it's partly autobiographical. So when I look back on my own life, I can see from the age of 18 or, or as a child, really, I can see a, a movement in retrospect through the levels red to blue to orange to, to green into second tier. Um, but also just I feel quite because I, I was involved in my teenage years in a, in a very fundamentalist religion, I feel quite passionately about the harm that an unhealthy, extreme form of blue can do. I mean, there are, of course, very healthy forms of blue. Um, and so I wanted just to address how even an unhealthy blue can, through triggered by some kind of crisis, as, as, as we have in this, in this story, make a movement through orange to green and, and even higher. And that's what I wanted to get across, not just in terms of models and frameworks, which probably only speak to a limited number of people, but in terms of a real flesh and blood story that people can relate to. So that's it was it was, if you like, my argument against extreme fundamentalist religion and how even from such an inauspicious start, the potential is there to move to you know, a, a, a profound mystical realization which is what that story is. Yeah, which is interesting because I completely agree. And you could even make the argument that there's there's even there, there's a certain kind of narrative, which I often hear, um, which is if precisely because one found themselves in a kind of very extreme, unhealthy form of blue, that it kind of catapulted them uh, into orange and, and, and onward um, as a reaction to it, um, which arguably like if it had been a little bit more comfortable if it had kind of all just been you know mm -hmm. easy going might not have happened so there's an interesting way in which our unhealthy and extreme versions um, of these experiences can themselves be sort of the the potential um yeah uh, catalyst for our own development i know it was for me i think uh and at the same time that doesn't that doesn't justify or or uh, what's the word kind of um you know, it doesn't mean it's not an argument for having extreme radical conservative uh, fundamentalist forms of blue out there. Um, so, it, it, yeah, that, that's it, that's that's something I can relate to in my own experience. Um, it, I, I also, though, I am interested in theoretically like trying to understand better and come to terms with those healthier versions of these things. And I think this can be especially true when you do have kind of negative experiences with a particular level that you kind of dissociate or you uh, kind of, um, you know, kind of becomes part of your shadow and you, um, you don't really want anything to do with that anymore. Um, so I don't know, is there any, do you have any thoughts about that for people who have had an experience like that and how you kind of reclaim that, that, that blue or whatever level it is that, that, that kind of traumatic thing happened at in a way that's, um, that kind of does lead to healthy development? Yes, uh, development often happens because development is actually quite difficult. Um, it often happens, not always, but often happens in response to crisis of some kind. When that, when the level that we're currently working with just doesn't work anymore, 
we can often reach a real moment of crisis which can propel us forward. And unhealthy versions can sometimes do that better than healthy versions. As you said, a healthy blue can be just so comfortable that you're not gonna be in a crisis very easily. Um, whereas the, the kind of unhealthy blue, for example, I talk about in this book is a very, very extreme fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity, uh, where everything is neatly explained and, and every, everything else and everybody else is just wrong. And when the protagonist, essentially the story is his wife and daughter are killed in a car accident. And it, there's just no way to really accommodate that in his unhealthy blue. And that moves into a crisis which propels him forward. But I think, yeah, that when we're dealing with a, an unhealthy version of any level, I think there's two main ways we can address that. We can either translate, so help the person to move towards a healthier version of that same level if they're not ready to transform truly. Or if perhaps the crisis is great enough, then just moving to a healthy version of that level won't be sufficient. They, they need to make a leap to the next level of development. Um, certainly that's happened to me two or three times in my life. Yeah, um, likewise. I think that, 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 yeah. Well, well, that's interesting the way you frame that, though, because it, it reminds me of the way of thinking about complex systems and sort of, uh, you know, these attractors, right? And sort of like when they're out of equilibrium, it can either, you know, you can either break down or you can break through to some kind of you know, level up. Um, and um, yeah, I think that that's a, probably more than just metaphorical, um, but it's, it's, it's very, uh, could be built into the very dynamics of how this, these sorts of things happen. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off, by the way. I don't know if you were making a, a different point at, at when I was. Um, no, no. I, okay. I, 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 um, well, anyway, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's a, it's a really compelling sort of account of that, you know, that kind of transition. And, um, there are people in my life I've thought of, uh, recommending it to who I feel like would, uh, you know, it's, um, it's sort of very gently, because you go through the process that the protagonist is going through. Um, so you don't feel like you're sort of being lectured or this or that. It's sort of a, a story of someone's experience with these sorts of things. And then their, their, their growth from that. And uh, could be something that um, someone who is in a healthy un and unhealthy kind of blue context of, you know, finding that book could be like, Oh, wow, this kind of opened up some new ideas. So um, very, very cool. Um, is there anything um, that you would like to direct folks too in terms of stuff that you're either up to or um any other work or uh anything like that that you feel like um you know you want to share people can find you um well yes if people found the first half of the talk on the the way this story evolves through the levels if people found that interesting and want to know about that in more detail then i think you're going to provide a link to uh, the, the the one hour talk i gave on that called yep. evolution of religion and also what, uh, something coming up soon, which uh, some people might be interested in, is on the 26th of March, um, I'm giving another talk to the same Spirodynamics integral group on, this, uh, on the evolution of Christianity. So I'm going to be looking specifically at the Christian religion and focusing especially on the figure of Jesus and seeing how we might understand Christianity and Jesus, again, through these levels, purple up to turquoise. And I'll be taking a similar approach. I'll be looking at eight different universals that Christians are concerned with and seeing how these transform as we as we develop through the levels. So if, cool. if 
anyone has a special interest in Christianity, they they might uh, find that interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Well, if uh, depending on when there's a link for that, I could also share that too. But um, yeah, that sounds that okay. sounds really cool. Great. Cool. Well, hey, thank you so much, uh, Nish Tabashi. Stay on the line because I want to just chat after this. But um, but in the meantime, uh, yeah, this has been really good, and I'd I'd love to maybe potentially dig into again. This it's such a what a topic, you know. There's there's so many things that, that we could explore. So um, so I appreciate your uh, your your depth of uh, knowledge and uh, and and familiarity with all this stuff, and maybe we can dig a little deeper some other time. But um, anyway, Certainly. thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.